Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Trendsetters podcast episode. Today, I'm joined by Michael Hunter, who is a management consultant currently with Alex Partners. Formerly, Michael was a CMO at BBDO, the largest agency in the world at the time. That, that might still be the case. And also a marketing brand leader with several consumer-facing brands. Michael, it's truly an honor to, to, to have you on today. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Jake. Great to be here with you. So I'd love to, you know, before we dive into it, I'd love to get uh, a little bit more of a sense of what you do currently. So, so if you have kind of a quick kind of an intro to that, we'd, we'd love to, to break that down a little bit further. Sure. So as you mentioned, I work for Alex Partners, and we're a global consulting firm that specializes in helping businesses address their most complex and critical challenges. And um, as you alluded to uh, before that, I, I'm told I have a, a fairly unique 360-degree view of the marketing and advertising industry, having worked in brand management and uh, CPG for Campbell Soup Company, consumer durables for Whirlpool, retail uh, at Best Buy. And then, yes, at BBDO, I was the CMO of the agency network Southern Arm in Atlanta. And along the way, I performed independent consulting to 18 companies, again, a mix of manufacturers, retailers, and agencies. And what I love about management consulting and, and the type of work we do now is that it's very big and strategic. So seldom are we just serving the CMO. Most often, it's the CEO or division president and his or her team, whether that be the chief operating strategy, transformation, procurement officer. And it's holistic in that the, the types of problems we help our clients solve are big topics, like how to get the company growing its top line. So that, mm -hmm. that could be, it could be a marketing issue or it could be pricing or the way their sales force is structured. And sometimes it's how to grow their bottom line, which involves smarter management of SG&A expenses. So it's a real great variety of tasks that we help our clients with. Yeah, that's incredible. And and you mentioned some of those past experiences and, you know, having to choose maybe just one one or two of those is, is kind of like having to choose uh, maybe which kid is the best. Like, you know, it's one of those things where you love them all. You, you can't ultimately decide. But, you know, of those past experiences and, and roles that you've held, is, is there one that stands out to you as the one that you maybe grew the most from? So I would say that it probably is, is the current one because it, it is the culmination of all of my experiences. But I, I, in terms of which of the, the, the stops along the way, if you will, I can tell you that I had the most fun when I was on the agency side uh, with, uh, with BBDO. And um, so it, I think the entire industry, let's call it marketing and advertising, is it's great. It's just plain interesting. Everyone can relate to it because everyone is a, a, a consumer. I truly believe in the power of advertising and, and even that it adds some value to society by giving consumers the information they, they need to, to make decisions in, in their lives and, and what to do with their, with their dollars. So it, this probably gets into the realm of more uh, uh, career advice and, and we'll see if we, we uh, get there in, in this conversation, but one of the key learnings, and this to me applied not only when I was on the client side, but I've used it in every single role. And happily, it, it came early in my career. I was an associate brand manager on the Chunky Soup brand, and we got a bunch of TV scripts in from the agency. And they were going to be uh, presented the, the next day. And I passed them the scripts along to my boss. Um, I'll never forget the, it came right back. We had in trays in, cause remember we're dealing with paper at this point. And he said on a yellow sticky note, it said, what's your POV? What's your point of view? 
And it, it struck me there that I needed to embrace what I call uh, the power of the words I recommend, as in I recommend that we do X and for the following reason. And it, it said to me that he didn't want to do my thinking for me. He, he valued my opinion. Uh, uh, it said that he wanted me to bring him solutions, not problems. And, and I think that mindset, it works in managing bosses, for ma- managing customers, managing clients. And I think it's a mindset that has served me well in, in each of my subsequent roles. Yeah, that's incredible experience. And I think it's something that, you know, especially a lot of our listeners that are just now getting into the workforce and establishing their roles should always be looking for those opportunities to provide insight, provide advice, give recommendations. Um, and, and, and like you mentioned, provide solutions, not problems, which I think is a very important kind of caveat to that. Now, the agency space is, is certainly always under some sort of evolution and, and maybe that accelerates over time. But, uh, you know, for, from, from your perspective, now kind of being less on the, the traditional kind of marketing advertising agency side of things, more in the consulting realm, from your perspective right now, is there anything you would say is maybe missing from, from, from the industry or from agencies today? I don't know about anything that's missing, but there are a number of issues that are besetting the the industry, and uh, most of which I think have have received quite a lot of of press. So I don't think we need to to spend a ton of time on any one of them unless you want to drill down into it. But as amazing as the marketing and advertising industry is, we're seeing a lot of uh, reevaluation, especially by the major holding companies. What does their overhead structure look like? What is the complexity of their offering? I sense that you'll uh, see continued agency brand consolidation and the streamlining streamlining of costs that go with it. You're seeing zero-based budgeting from clients, right, where they start with a clean sheet. And instead of just what they spent last year, plus or minus 10%, they're, they're rethinking everything. There's online ad fraud and waste where a shockingly low percent of your, uh, of the ads served are actually seen in housing of agencies. And I, I led, um, a, an in-house agency in, in one of my client side roles. And I, I'm actually a big believer of, of inside and outside agencies, uh, uh, using them uh, smartly and, and, um, and selectively. And then there are consultancies, whether it's, it's like, uh, my own Alex partners or the Accenture's or Deloitte's of, of the world. So all of these pressures are acting at once. And these were all true before this thing called COVID-19 yeah. came along. So the, it is a very dynamic and, and especially difficult time in the agency world. Yeah, certainly. And, and, and while it is incredibly difficult, I, I would say for those inside of it, it can be one of the more enjoyable kind of career experiences. And, and I know you personally have, have mentioned um, even before the podcast today, um, 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 you know, kind of your, your, your love for the marketing advertising industry. So I guess now, now that you are a little bit away from that, but, but still kind of connected, what, is there anything you miss or, or anything that, that, that you loved about the advertising marketing industry? So yes. And, and again, there's a long list of positives. So I, I miss getting inspired by a great ad. I can still feel that way as a consumer but no longer as a client or, or as an agency exec. And, you know, even as analytical as I am, there's something indefinable about how some creative simply sells better than others. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not something that every consultant or even every executive understands. So whether that ad is based on a rational argument, like a killer comparison that shows, you know, your client has a better mousetrap than its competitors or an emotional appeal whether that's uh, via uh, humor, sadness, that I really miss uh, uh, dealing with that every day. 
and it's related to, to the notion of, of fun. I, I, I can't imagine a more creative work environment, one that, that places a strong focus on the employee experience and mm-hmm. it, it, agency culture uh, and not just the customer experience, which, of course, is paramount for all of us. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And I would echo kind of all of those thoughts in that arena. Now, obviously, us at Trendsetters as an agency, as we kind of exist and, and being a, a Gen Z agency, and that, that's, that's what we do. But I also know there's a lot of skepticism and debate put towards what, what we would call maybe generational marketing or cohorts. So I'd love to get a sense of what your stance is on that generational marketing realm. And, and are these kind of generational cohorts, are they real or is this all kind of a, a facade or, or kind of just a, an abstract idea to describe something that, that might not be concrete in any sort of fact? So my gut feel is that it's more the latter mm-hmm. uh, than, than the former. In, in other words, I, I think it's a little bit more in the realm of marketers marketing to other marketers. Yeah. But I do believe there's some substance there. And, and, um, and, and this is more of a, a, a kind of a cultural observation of our industry. Every industry has its buzzwords, its lingo, its trends. But I think advertising in particular seems to lurch from one shiny object to another. And if you just read the, the, the pages of advertising age over the last, say, decade, it was, you know, social media, then big data, yeah. and then brand purpose, and, and then storytelling. And, and at some point there, there is, you know, interwoven in among all of those, you'll hear a lot of talk about millennials or Gen Z. And when it comes to those generational groupings, uh, I've always been intrigued whether there was any data supporting it or mm-hmm. whether they were just catchy names of for groups of people who share nothing much beyond the coincidence of having been born in the same time frame. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it is one of those longstanding debates. And, and I know Ogilvy did a report uh, early this year in 2020 talking about how millennials lied um, and, and all of the, this data to, to actually back that, hey, after the fact, we look at millennial millennials and their purchasing habits and, oh, what do we see? Well, they're actually purchasing based on the purpose of a brand less than that rate of, of even baby boomers and even the silent generation, right? And, and you know, granted, all these are within insights reports and, and certainly data can skew certain ways. Uh, but, but I think it is an interesting debate. So, so I guess then what, what would your advice maybe to be towards marketers who, who maybe find a little bit too much fascination with, with, uh, with, with this generational kind of tags or cohorts, which I'd also preface that with the fact that I would totally agree. And despite us, you know, we're focused on Gen Z. The first thing I always tell clients is if you're telling me you want to just reach Gen Z, the first thing we need to do is some insights and, and consulting and strategy because we need to determine what Gen Z, because Gen Z is not, we are not collectively the same. And while we certainly have some characteristics in, in, in common, you know, th- th- that could be just because we're youth and it could be kind of the era we, we've grown up in, not necessarily, you know, our generation as a whole. So I guess what, what's your advice, I, I guess, to, uh, to maybe marketers or, or the industry at large when it comes to generational marketing? So I think my advice would be remain skeptical mm-hmm. and, and not just when it comes to generational marketing, remain skeptical about everything and, and adopt this. We do this in consulting all the time. We manage by hypothesis. Mm-hmm. We think a client's problem based on our initial analysis is this, but we're open-minded enough to, to, to know that as we pressure test that with data, both quantitative and qualitative, it may not be that. And so, um, so similarly, I like the fact that you've got a, a, I would say, a healthy degree of skepticism or at least objectivity with regard to, to this topic. 
And candidly, from an agency positioning standpoint, again, having consulted to a number of agencies, I would say having a thing, like having something that you stand for or that that it makes you in some way memorable, I think it's better than not having a, a thing. And in fact, I think it's more probable that you could bring a client in, you know, uh, to help them with their, their so-called Gen Z marketing activities and earn your way to, well, gosh, if trendsetters did a, a good job of, of our Gen Z effort, I'll bet they could do a great job, you know, reaching other generations who consume our product. So mm-hmm. I think that it's not without its merit. And I, I'd actually love to see that Ogilvy data. I'm not surprised because remember, I, I'm skeptical about both brand purpose or that, that movement and also generational marketers. So it's intriguing to know that millennials are actually less purpose-driven, the, the so-called yeah. <laughs> ultimate purpose-driven ones than, than other generational cohorts. Yeah, yeah. And something you mentioned in that was the skepticism around this brand purpose. And, and this is something that, that I think, uh, you know, you and I kind of touched on, on prior was kind of both how we see, you know, the, the marketing and advertising realm. And, and I would say, maybe not the emotional side of it, but this idea of brand purpose. And and these, these less tangible items that, that are being proclaimed as the solution to all of our problems, when in reality, it's, it's almost like, what is the actual definition of those? So you mentioned that skepti- skepticism around purpose. I guess, how, how would you, I, I, I guess I'd love to dive into that a little bit further. What, what do you mean by that skepticism around kind of purpose? So the brand purpose movement, do I believe that some brands are purpose-driven or even purpose or born of purpose? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Tom's Shoes, I think, is a great example. Patagonia, I think, and some of the out, outerwear brands and linking, you know, to the, the environmental movement, I think it's, it's a good, it's a smart brand fit for them. Mm-hmm. But for, for every one of those types of brands, think of how a consumer really lives her day, right? W- what is the brand purpose behind Drano to unclog her sink or Cheez-Its at the grocery store because she wants a snack? And so to me, if you look at the vast majority of how consumers, and we're consumers as well, live our lives, I don't think that in reality we're waiting around to be sold a company's purpose. And in fact, I think consumers have very little time to dig into a lot of the research that would be required in order to understand a brand's purpose. And I think we as an industry tend to kid ourselves just how important things like that are to consumers. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of the problem stems from the fact that some of the best advertising and marketing we see, uh, or at least that gets headlines and, and gets spoken about, is maybe purpose oriented or driven. And you know, I know because I've seen this, you know, within even our own agency, that you have the client that comes to you, and in no way are they aligned with an objective nor purpose like that of an Apple or Nike is the two that kind of stand out the most, or even a Coca Cola, right? In terms of just like that scale of advertising. Yet they're going to want to use kind of this model of, oh, this Apple ad or this Nike ad and kind of chase and be something that ultimately they aren't. And I think that's where, you know, it gets into problems at a certain point, you know, a brand like Oreos, what does that really have to do with, with, with a larger purpose, right? Like, you know, just a sugary snack, like, which, which by the way, I don't see that that as any, there's no problem associated with that, you know, be and act as whoever you want. But do you think that, you know, where do you think that problem stems from? Is it, this expectation of, of maybe, and, and I think this, this, this layers into the consulting side of things as well, but, but is, it, is it quite difficult for you to, to see the label when you're inside of the bottle? When you're inside of a brand, maybe it means more to you and you don't get that outsider perspective. So 
I guess, how do you level with maybe business or brand executives and getting them to kind of understand the, the true outsider identity of the brand, not the one that's just on all the decks and all the reports and that they spend their entire career on, right? Yes. And I think you started to allude to it, Jake. What's the problem here? Assuming you buy that there, there is a problem. Mm-hmm. What's the problem? It's really us and the way we as an industry have uh, talked to one another, whether it's via social media or in the trades. And I think it bears looping back to the uh, a study. You mentioned the Ogilvy one. I wanted to allude to one done by BBH. It was done in the UK, but I know it would apply to, to the industry in, in just about any country. And while it showed pretty weak cohesion among the generational groupings, where it showed very high cohesion was uh, from a profession standpoint. Mm. And if any of your listeners are interested in, in seeing the, the study, it's from BBH Labs. It's the group cohesion and generational myth. And, and basically, it shows that put together what's called a cohesion score by asking respondents across 419 lifestyle statements, their degree of agreement with it. And basically what it shows is that Gen Z has practically zero cohesion, like 0.2. So forget decimals. Gen X is like a one on this scale. Millennials are a two. People who floss are a three. (laughs) Introverts are a four. Uh, people who drink orangina, I, I'm quoting right from the study right now, you know, that, that, that funky uh, orange flavored drink with the, with the neat bottle shape, you find it most often in Europe, they're a four and a half. But what's interesting is the other part of the study then starts to say, okay, so if the generations aren't single-minded, who is? And then they go by profession. And, and now let's go, I, I'm, I'm quoting right from the, uh, their, their article or their, their study in decreasing order of like-mindedness. Marketing and advertising is a six on the scale. Teaching is a five. The military and farmers are fours. And you get down to things like, you know, construction is, is a, a, a two. And their conclusion, I'm not sure I could write it any better. I'm just quoting right from their article. It's, this is advertising's biggest problem, the monoculture. Mm-hmm. How can we possibly understand, represent, and sell to an entire country when we exist in such a bubble? We like to style ourselves as free thinkers, mavericks, and crazies. But the grim truth is that we're a more insular profession with more conformists than the military. And it, it really is, I know that that's, that's quite a mouthful, but it's a, it's a fascinating study, not only about consumers, who we should all understand better, regardless of where we sit in the industry, but also in understanding ourselves. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And I know another thing from that that, that I found, uh, kind of another snippet was about uh, it, it provided the reference of, well, let's say the millennials in the U.S. go and form their own avocado nation. Well, and, 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 and what would that look like? And now we can see 79 million Americans and, and all of that. And then, and then they changed the headline from uh, instead of millennials to, to certain countries, right? And, and individuals mm-hmm. within it. And then you see, oh, wait, that is kind of messed up how, how they're kind of grouping, you know, all, the, that, the, all those large individuals together because – I think if you take millennials alone, they'd be the 19th largest country in the world. So I think it puts, it really puts things into perspective. So I think that's a, that's incredible insight. Well, I I guess, and I don't know if there's a solution to this, but certainly taking a a consultative approach, uh, you know, that might be a solution, but this is similar to the the representation problem we have with diversity in the the industry and, and kind of push towards that. But from, from what I'm gathering, it's this sense of, we all in marketing and advertising think more alike than all of these other demographics that, that even we're trying to go after. So how are we to, to best be able to even understand that 
so I guessed, and, and I don't know if there is a solution kind of top of mind, but, but how would you say we, we, I don't know if, it, if it's, we collectively overcome it, but how would you say we, we best maybe address that? So first of all, I, I credit you with the alluding to the size of the sample. So yes, when, when you, when you aggregate a generation, it's kind of like saying gen pop. It, it is like yeah. almost a, a country, whether it cuts across geographic lines or, or not. And even that is insightful. So to the extent you agree, there's a problem. And uh, one famous general said, said, I've seen the enemy and it is us. As long as we know that we can each fall prey to insular thinking, that's the first step is acknowledging that there's a potential issue. And do I think it's a massive issue? No, I think the industry continues to produce some outstanding work for clients, some better than others, of course, the nature but again, just acknowledge any potential bias and try and factor that into, into your work going forward. That's certainly interesting insights. Now, I want to shift topics briefly <laughs> because, you know, when I was introduced into the advertising realm, I had no idea ad agencies or this entire you know, world of marketing existed. Then you get introduced in, into it and it's kind of, you know, it becomes addictive and, and you kind of want to learn more. And I think it's one of the least kind of spoken about things from, from the, the real world or, or even in business schools. Uh, so, so it's kind of glossed over, but then you find it and it's kind of this, this diamond in the rough. Well, I, I would say, you know, consulting, you could loop into that category. And while there's certainly accounting programs and things of that nature that, that layer into consulting, I think from, a, from an early career standpoint, it, it, it might be one of the least talked about kind of subject uh, or, or kind of industries or markets that is. So for our listeners here that, that are maybe interested in that consulting realm or, or at least want to dabble to learn more, what is ultimately your role as a, as a consultant, as a management consultant for brands? Because I know it takes on a lot and, and it, it is very kind of high level and big picture, but, but I, I know you mentioned kind of a hypothesis before, and maybe it boils down to that particular hypothesis or even a thesis so, so I guess, what do you make of, of consulting at, at, at large? And, and if you were to boil it down, what does that ultimately look like? Sure. It, it, let's talk a little bit about consulting. And, and I'll, I'll start from, a, from common ground. Mm -hmm. So advertising agencies and management consultancies, both are professional service businesses. And we both serve clients. In, in my case, I consult to consumer products companies, retailers, and agencies just because that's my background. That's, yeah. that's what I know. And so those three kind of interrelated industries or, or, or sub segments, if you will. Billing is uh, in many ways the same. Your clients are paying you for your expertise and or your time. Mm -hmm. They're paying you to do something that they can't do on their own. And so whether that's extra brain power, extra legs at, at times to help them supplement their team. So again, very similar. And I think, uh, in fact, I think there are more similarities than differences. One of the differences is what I alluded to uh, earlier, where our scope tends to be different in management consulting. And so for instance, so I absolutely love marketing, but I'm equally fascinated by how a sales organization is structured or whether their, their entire go-to-market plan, the way they price their products is uh, relative to their competitors is on track. So again, the work I do now is is less marketing and advertising centric. I see a broader array of problems. They do tend to, tend to be I would say bigger problems and bigger opportunities, 
but that in I don't think in any way makes management consulting better than advertising. I I, I personally find them both fascinating. If if any of your listeners was interested in getting into management consulting, then I would start with primary research and look up some of the the, the big name firms, the management consulting firms, ideally including Alex Partners, and then do some networking. Reach out to to people to learn more about this corner of professional services and to see whether it might be a, a good fit for you. Perfect. Perfect. So earlier you mentioned the sticky note and, and I recommend, is there any other career advice you, you would give to our listeners here? Sure. So I would recommend that you get as close to revenue generation as possible within your business, you, whether you're on the client side or agency side. And always be clear about how your role helps bring in revenue, even indirectly, okay? I'm, I'm not saying go be a salesperson, yeah. okay? Who are arguably the most, the, the truly closest to, to revenue generation. But because um, w- what we find is that if, if you're just part of a cost center where your responsibility is spending money, which which is a key part of any company, it's often the first budget and headcount cut when businesses restructure. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's advice that I echo as well. Something that, that I always see, you know, we, we get anywhere from like 50 to 100, 150 applicants every single month, and we'll end up only hiring anywhere from like one to three a month, uh, try to keep things kind of exclusive and, and, and agile. But, but one of the things and, and commonalities I've seen with, with young people, especially those applying is, and I don't know what this stems from, but, but it's almost this, I deserve this amount of money because I can help you do this. And I, and I, and I, and it's all about I, which Look, you should be selfish going into any sort of job. And, but if your goal is, in fact, to, to land that job, understand that, that you are serving a purpose, not only of your career and, and the advancement and enjoying and, and you should have fun with it, which, which you obviously will on the agency side. And, and if you're in a great role and, and if that's what you're applying for, but you need to serve something that is ultimately giving back to the greater, the greater purpose, the greater mission and propelling that company forward. And something I see as a commonality is the lack of understanding of that revenue generation. You know, like you said, you don't have to be a salesperson, but show me how your ability to do social media better or create better videos or create more content or manage clientele. Show me how that actually translates to revenue outside of what I, number one, what I already have. And number two, what I could go get out elsewhere on the market for potentially cheaper. And I think that's totally overlooked. Is there any kind of final career advice or anything you would add to that? Maybe just one other point, and, and that is figure out where in the marketing ecosystem you fit best. And that could be in pure marketing or even sales. It could be client side or agency side. You could be a generalist or a specialist, especially in the fragmented digital landscape, because um, uh, long-term career planning is difficult for anyone. It, it's, uh, and that's, this is why I tend to take a pretty dim view of projections is that they tend to be wrong because yeah. they're in the future. It's, it's guesswork. But what we do know, and this, this stat has held pretty true for a long time, is that the average tenure of a chief marketing officer is 36 months. Mm-hmm. And so by the time, let's say you're the Gen Z aged now, by the time you get to my Gen X age, do you really want to be jumping companies and starting over every three years? And, and even if you do, and that sounds exciting, will the opportunities be there for you in a nice sequential manner? So again, figuring out where you add value, how you relate to revenue or business improvement more broadly 
and and then creating your career path with a a, a long term view of, as to where you might end up or where you want to end up would be advice that that I would give. Yeah, and that's incredible. And I think you know something to note on that is whatever you set today of where you want to end up, that that's probably going to change. I think it definitively will. You never know, especially for for us as Gen Z. You know, maybe maybe you have a significant other or not, but you never know when you're going to meet that one person and they're going to want to move to a different country and you're going to want to change their, your entire life for that other person. Or you're going to find this hobby that, that comes out. You, there's going to be a new esports game that drops next year. You're going to get addicted. You're going to jump on the bandwagon. That's what you're going to do next. You know, you never know what's going to change. But understanding that direction, I think, is so incredibly important to reverse engineer the steps to get there because having a direction is, is far better than not having one and just kind of running in circles. And my final, final question for you, Michael, that I always ask all of our podcast guests is any recommendations on learning and information. So whether it's books, whether it's courses, whether it's resources, you know, some past guests have, have said, hey, you need to re read the Wall Street Journal every single morning. You need to read this book. I now have a book list of like 250 that I still need to get to. And, and I'm slowly kind of working at. But for you, are, are there any sources of information, education that you would recommend? Sure. So I've already plugged the, the, the BBH Labs study, uh, Puncturing the Paradox, Group Cohesion and the Generational Myth. And it's funny, I, I, I too, I do read the Wall Street Journal, okay, .com, WSJ.com, <laughs> every morning. And I'm a voracious reader. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn in part for the content. I want to mm -hmm. see what other people are posting, both their individual opinions. Okay, maybe in the advertising industry, their opinions tend to be very much alike, but I want to know what they're thinking and I want to see what articles they're referencing. And so, and yeah, and when you read, read across the spectrum as, as best you can, and or I should say spectra, because there are many different spectrums and uh, gather other points of view, remain skeptical, remain curious, and consider yourself in many ways lucky to be part of, of what I think is, is again, in my view, the most interesting and certainly the, the, the most fun function within business, which is marketing and advertising. Yes, that's incredible insight. We'll, uh, we'll be sure to get right on it. Thanks for having me on, Jake. I really enjoyed the discussion. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. And for our podcast listeners, be sure to let me know any questions or, or further kind of uh, insight you need um, on any of our social media channels. And I'll be sure to answer that right away. And I will see you all next time.